let's pray together. Jesus taught in Luke 11 about prayer, and he said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. As he concludes that teaching, he says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Father, we come this morning gathered together individually, um, collectively, just taking you at your word, believing that if we ask, we will receive. If we seek, we'll find. If we knock, it'll be open to you. And Lord, we come asking. Individually, Lord, I pray for each person in our church that um, you would give them the Holy Spirit. You'd give them the fullness of the measure of Christ. I pray that you would fill them with the fullness of your Son so they can be empowered to fight temptation and to walk in the spirit and not according to the flesh. And then, Lord, I pray for us collectively as a church that you would, you would fill us, just as we've seen in the book of Acts, that you would fill us so that we can live emboldened as we proclaim your gospel, as we proclaim the good news about who you are um, with our lips, but also with our lives. So, Lord, I pray this morning as we turn to your word that it would accomplish its purpose. We know your word is profitable for teaching for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So, Lord, let your word have its work this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. It's good to see all of you this morning. Um, hey, before we jump into today's text, if you weren't here last week, um, can I just encourage you to go to our website, go to Spotify, and, and just listen to the sermon that Coleman was able to preach through Acts 11. Um, man, I left last week just deeply encouraged. He shared about the life of Barnabas and, and what would it look like to be a Barnabas-cultured church. And Barnabas was someone that could perceive the grace of God in the lives of other people and then come alongside that in the growth of those people. I, I just left deeply encouraged. Um, and then secondly, uh, we had our second ever Start Here last week. Start Here is this, the first step in our membership process. We, we packed out our dining room during the second service. Um, and, and again, it just, it just left me feeling encouraged, like just to be able to see what God is doing in the lives of our church um, left me encouraged. So, I, you know, some mornings I come to you overly caffeinated, um, sometimes appropriately caffeinated. Sometimes it's, I'm, I'm heavy spiritually because of the text that we're preaching is heavy. But this morning I just come encouraged, encouraged about what God's doing in the life of our church. Um, and I pray as we turn to Acts 12 now, uh, you too would leave encouraged. So if you have your Bibles. Go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 12. And as you turn there, and as I turn there, um, let me ask you a question. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of the Napoleon complex? Okay, M many of you may know it as the small dog syndrome, right? A domineering or aggressive attitude perceived as a form of overcompensation for being physically small or short. Let me just go ahead and affirm to you what you're thinking. <laughs> it totally defines me, Okay. From ages 6 to about 20, this is who I was. And it's still there. Christ has saved me. He's redeemed me. But, man, I, I'm, I'm totally there. Um, so although I was never the biggest, I can promise you I was always the meanest. Um, my attitude, especially when it came to sports, was um, you're not going to win because I am not going to lose. Like just this domineering attitude. And that got me pretty far in public school single-A athletics. It also got me um, into deep, deep trouble at times. So let me, let me tell you a very true story about how this got me in trouble. Um, my freshman year in high school, I was probably five foot four, 130 pounds, okay, sopping wet. You couldn't have told me that though. I mean, in my mind's eye, I'm 6'4", 225. Until, true story, I 
picked a fight with someone who was six foot four, 225 pounds. My freshman year, this guy was a senior. He ended up going to play football at the University of Georgia, great athlete. We were great friends, his family and our family. And one afternoon, I was at his house playing video games with his little brother, and he would not, y'all, would not leave me alone, bullying me, nagging me, picking at me. And the way that he chose to do it, I mean, I kid you not, was to hit me with water balloons while we're playing video games in his house towards the TV, just hitting me with water balloons. And after a couple hours, y'all, I'd had enough. Truly had had enough, but I'm smart, and I realized I got I to be patient, <laughs> I got to buy my time, and I did. After a few hours, he settled into the couch, turned on a movie, and the time had come. I walk up to him, chest, chest puffed out with, with the biggest water balloon a human can create, <laughs> and he saw it and said, don't you, and before he could get the word dare out of his mouth, I crow hopped, y'all, hit him with an 80 mile an hour water balloon. <laughs> it was awesome. But I have never in my life seen a man of that size get off a couch as fast as he did. And the chase, the pursuit was on. It's a true story. Pursuit is on. I'm serpentining through the basement, you know, cutting corners real tight because, like, if he catches me, this is over. I make it out the back door thinking he'll stop eventually. He doesn't. Outside the house, we, we circle the house, and I realize while I'm running, y'all, I'm not going to make it. Like, if he catches me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. And I come into the basement for the second time, and I did the only thing that I could think to do, scream for help. <laughs> just, just, started, just started screaming for help. And y'all, in that moment, I, I promise this is a true story. In that moment, y'all, I was delivered. I didn't escape. I was delivered. Because we had a rule in our house. I have a bunch of brothers. You can beat up your brother, but nobody outside the home has that privilege or that right. So when I screamed for help, my older brother, who had started at middle linebacker for four years, full beard, comes out of nowhere and just waylays his buddy. They go toppling to the ground, and they're wrestling, and I come over and go, ha, you know, and then, and then I run, like I run as fast as I can all the way home. All right, so why do I, why do I share that? Um, there's a lady in this church who taught at my high school when I was there. She can corroborate that this is going to be a true story. Why do I share that? Okay, in my moment of desperation, like when I was totally outmatched and I knew something was about to happen, I did the only thing that I could think to do, cry for help. And in that desperate cry, I was delivered, delivered by my older brother. But as we come to Acts chapter 12, y'all, what, what we're going to see is, is a similar situation, but obviously to a much more eternal and a much more greater degree. What we're going to find in Acts chapter 12 is, is some more persecution. But that persecution is going to lead the church to pray to cry for help. And that prayer is going to tap into God's power, and God's power is going to accomplish God's purposes. So that we're, that's what we're going to look at in Acts chapter 12. So if you have your Bible, let's begin to read in verse 1. I'm going to read all the way to verse 24, beginning in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. And a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him and said, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. 
And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and along one street, and immediately the angel left them. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, no, 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 it's just his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, King Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. All right, let's go back to verse 1 here. So, so what's going on here? Let's, let's take a look at our context. It says, about that time. So what time are we referencing? This is the time that Coleman preached on last week, that Barnabas and Paul had been sent from Antioch to Jerusalem to give some assistance to the church in Judea because there was a great famine going on through the land. So the time that a famine is happening throughout the land, this king by the name of Herod does what? Lays violent hands on some who belong to the church. All right, so who is this Herod guy? Y'all, King Herod is a wicked and nasty character. His grandfather was also pretty wicked. His name was Herod the Great, okay? If that sounds familiar, it's because Herod the Great was ruling in the time that Jesus was born. Herod the Great was the one that, that was on his throne when the three wise men came in and said, hey, where's the king to be born over the Jews? Right? And, and Herod the Great tells him, hey, go find him and then come back to me and let me know where he's at because I, I want to worship him too. But the wise men with a dream don't go back to Herod the Great, which frustrates him. So Herod the Great does what? He sends an executioner down to Bethlehem to kill all male children two years old or younger. That man's wicked. Genocide of these little boys in Bethlehem was, was this king's grandfather, Herod the Great. Okay, But Herod the Great also killed others, not just Jewish boys from Bethlehem. He actually killed his own son. He feared that his son was going to usurp his throne or his authority, so he had him murdered. That son was King Herod's father. Okay, So this king, in Acts chapter 12's father, was murdered by his grandfather, Herod the Great. So at age 8, King Herod, the man in our text today, escapes to Rome, and he's raised and he's educated in Rome around the Roman aristocracy. 
And those connections, y'all, I mean, he's living a privileged life in Rome. And those connections that he made all throughout his childhood, all throughout his education, paid off big time. Because what history shows is the people of Rome continued to promote him to the point where he became king. King Herod over all of Israel, Samaria, Palestine, and Galilee. And y'all, this guy, Josephus, a first century historian, tells us was a preeminent politician. Like he could care less about particular issues. He just wanted to care about the issues that would get him reelected. He just wanted to care about the things that would make him popular and earn the favor of his people. And who were the people? Who were the masses that King Herod was ruling over? Jews. And what made the Jews happy? Quenching this sect called Christianity. So he lays hands on James, verse 2, the brother of John, thrust him through with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, political points, he got them. So when he saw that it pleased the, point, the, the Jews, he thought, maybe I can earn myself a little bit more favor. Let me lay hands on the leader of this movement. Let me put my hands on a bigger fish to fry, right? So who's he grab? He gets Peter, throws Peter into prison. But fortunately for Peter, he was arrested during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a seven-day festival that began the day after Passover. Two rules during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. First, all Jews from Israel have to attend Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. What that means is in Jerusalem at this time, there are masses of people, right? Full population is out, out the wazoo as they're waiting for the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread which means Herod sees an opportunity. If I can kill Peter with all these people in the town, that's really going to solidify his position. But the second thing about the Feast of Unleavened Bread is is it's against Mosaic law to have anybody executed during that feast. So he arrests Peter, throws Peter into prison, but has to wait till the seven-day festival is over before he has him executed. Church, Peter is in prison awaiting his inevitable execution. All right, that's our context. That's a desperate situation. The circumstances here are pretty gloom. But here's the first point for us this morning. What I want you to see in these first few verses is that this entire circumstance was dictated by the providence of God. All of it dictated by the providence of God. What what is providence? It's the governance of God by which he, with wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe cares for and directs all things god is providential y'all none of this caught god by surprise because it was all unfolding according to his plan so so what does that mean that means that king herod is a king because of god's providence daniel chapter 2 we we read this that uh, daniel writes it is it is god who sets up kings and removes kings When you read through the Exodus, God set Pharaoh up for such a purpose as this. When you read through Isaiah, you see that Cyrus of Assyria was prophesied to be king because God was going to set him up. When Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate, what does he tell him? The only authority you have is the authority my father has given you. God sets up kings. It was God's providence that put Herod in authority at such a time as this, which also means that James' death was by God's providence. James is the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder. This is God's providence that he was martyred. James and John, his brother, were two of the apostles that came alongside Jesus during Jesus' earthly uh, earthly ministry. And they said, hey, we want to sit at your right hand, and we want to sit at your left hand in your kingdom. And Jesus says, well, hang on. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? 
Can you be baptized with the baptism of which I am going to be baptized? A.K.A., are you willing to suffer? And they said, of course. Yes, of course we'll drink that drink. Of course we'll be baptized. And Jesus says, okay, you will be. That led to James's martyrdom. We don't know if he was beheaded. We don't know if he was thrust through with a sword. We just know he died at the end of a story. All of that in fulfillment of Jesus' promise. All of that in fulfillment of God's providence. Which also means in our text that Peter's arrest was according to God's providence. Well, Peter suffered. We'll talk about it a little bit later, but Peter, we're only in chapter 12. Peter has been through it, y'all. And Peter can later write in 1 Peter 4, 19, when he's encouraging the church, he says, listen, let those who suffer according to God's will. What does that mean? Apparently, to Peter, it means that our suffering is in accordance to the will of God. Our suffering, our pain, is providential. Now, let me, let me tread really lightly here, because I am intimately aware that many of you are walking through things right now that is purely pain, deep suffering. And the last thing I would want to do is just to generalize something for the sake of a sermon, because your situation is individual, it is real, and it is personal. And there is pain and there is suffering that you're walking through. But just because that's true doesn't mean that God is not providential over your pain. Some of you are suffering due to the sin of a broken world, right? Just to the fact that we live in a, in a fallen society, you're suffering. Some of you are suffering due to the sin of specific individuals, people who have sinned against you. Listen, I want to encourage you. God's word says that vengeance will be his. There's going to be a day where he makes every wrong right. He sees, he knows, and he cares. And that defender in him is coming. Doesn't mean, though, that he's not providential over it. Listen to what Viktor Frankl, that name, if you don't know that name, it, it's someone that knows a lot about pain, somebody that knows a lot about suffering. Viktor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor. This is what he wrote. He said, life is never made unbearable by circumstances or pain or suffering. Only when those circumstances or sufferings lack meaning and they lack purpose. He goes on to say, in some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds meaning. When you can believe in the providence of God, your pain and your suffering possess meaning. There's purpose in it. And church, I can't preach the whole sermon on suffering today, but we get so offended at this thought. Like, follow my logic here. We get offended. I think it's because we get, we've bought in, like hook, line, and sinker to the secularist worldview of our society. Our society will tell you that the meaning of life is to find happiness, Right? That the ultimate pursuit and aim of life is for you to be happy. So then we go, well, God is good, and God is loving, and God is providential, which means he wants me to be happy. So then when you start going through pain and you start going through suffering, what do we do? We say, he's not good. He's not loving. He's not kind. That's the worldly worldview. The Bible would teach that God does want you to be happy. Are you hear me? God does want you to be happy. He just wants you to be happy in him. Not in this world. In this world, you're going to have pain. You're going to have trials. You're going to have tribulations. But don't worry. He's, he's overcome the world. The purpose in pain is to actually wean us off the pleasures of the world so that we can put our pleasures in him. And when you can find that, I promise you, you, you you'll find what Peter has in the remainder of our text. There is purpose in pain. 
Church, in his providence, he permits your pain to bring you to him so you can be happy in him. So, it was providence that led to this persecution. But let's look at verse 5 because it's persecution that leads the church to prayer. So, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. What's the church doing? When this situation is so painful, when the circumstances are grim, what is the church doing? Okay, they're not picketing, right? They're not creating like sit-ins at the local shawarma shop. If you haven't had shawarma, highly recommended, okay? They are not engaging in mostly peaceful protests. Sorry, I had to throw that in there. That's funny, okay? They're not creating some cancel culture where they're like getting together and going, let's get him kicked off Facebook or, or Twitter. Let's, let's, let's give King Herod what he needs, okay? That's not what the church is doing. And church, there's a, there's a real thing in my heart around this. Like, we cannot utilize the weapons of this culture to change a sinful culture. We have got to tap into the weapons of the kingdom of God to change this culture. Man, we busy ourselves so much with what the world has to offer. Church, look at what the church is doing. When the culture is against them and when everything is grim and deep, they don't engage the, the tools of the culture. They start tapping into the power of prayer. They start praying. And notice their prayer. It's earnest. That word earnest in the Greek is to strain. They're stretching out to God in prayer. And this is where all of our learning begins to get us into trouble. I'm going to try to communicate this clearly, okay? What we, remember point number one, okay? Providence. Our learning gets us into trouble when we say, well, all of this is God's providence. That nothing outside the will of God will ever take place in this universe. I firmly believe that. But then we go, well, if everything happens according to God's will, why should I pray? Like, why should we even pray? Like, shouldn't we just submit ourselves to some kind of fatalism and go, well, whatever happens, happens? If that's a thought maybe that you're wrestling with, my, my fear is that you, you haven't understood providence and you haven't understood prayer. Church, it's God's providence that actually makes prayer vital. Let me explain this. According to Scripture, God, in His providence, with precision and with wisdom, listen to this, has chosen to hang the fulfillment of his plans upon the prayers of his people. Do you hear me? In his providence, he has chosen to hang the fulfillment of his plans on the prayers of his people. All right, let's just go back to Acts chapter 4. It, it's, the same, it's the same question of like, why do you pray? Why do you preach? Because preaching is a means of grace that God uses to ignite the hearts of his people. Same with prayer. Prayer is a means of grace. Let's go back to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, all 12 apostles have been arrested. They've been thoroughly beaten by 39 lashes, and they've been threatened to never speak the name of Christ again. When they are released, they gather together with the entire church in Acts 4 verse 24, and they say this, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And they begin to pray about their circumstances and say, these, and say, these circumstances are just doing whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. Hear their prayer, providence. We trust in your providence. We know that whatever is happening is happening according to your plan. Did they stop praying at that point? Did they just reserve themselves to fatalism? No, look at, look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And church, God responds to that prayer. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Church, the church believed. 
the first century church believed in the providence of God, but they also believed in the power of prayer. They prayed. They gave themselves to prayer. My, my fear is that we allow a, our faith in a, in a static intellectual doctrine like providence to rob us of the dynamic experiential power that's in prayer. Are you with me? Don't let that happen. Don't let all your learning keep you from obeying Christ's simple command. Pray. Pray. And they did. They prayed. That's what the church did. They prayed. They prayed earnestly. They strained. They stretched. Their situation was desperate. And they used that desperation to cry out to God. Verse 12. How else did they pray? When he realized this, Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. And and there many were gathered praying. They prayed corporately. So they prayed earnestly, but they also prayed corporately. Church, there is power when the church prays together. Jesus in Matthew 18 says, when two or three are gathered, whatever you ask, that he will do. There is corporate prayer that is powerful. So if you register for a grow group and you begin to get to know some other people in your church, invite them into your life. Invite them into the situations and the sufferings and the circumstances so that they don't judge you, but that we can pray together. Because there's power in corporate prayer. But they also seemingly prayed persistently. Right? Peter was arrested during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a seven-day festival, right? We don't know if he was arrested day two, day three, day four. But we can take from Scripture that they are gathered together praying over a period of days. Y'all, they are praying persistently. Luke chapter 11, Jesus taught on persistent prayer. He said, that a man went to his neighbor's house to get some bread because he had some friends come in late. The neighbor goes, hey, get away, right? What kind of reception would they get at your house? Midnight, a bunch of gun toters. I know what happens, right? And the guy from inside starts to say, get away. My kids are in bed with me. We're sleeping. Like, don't mess with us. Jesus says that man's going to actually end up getting up to give him bread. Why? Because he's his friend? No, because the Greek says, because of his shameless audacity in asking. Because there's a shamelessness in asking. So church, pray persistently. But finally, I, I, I just want you to be encouraged that they also seem to pray somewhat faithlessly. Right? When Peter came to the door and that sweet little girl, Rhoda, whose Greek word means rose, leaves him, leaves him outside, you know? Like, like Peter needs to get indoors, you know? Like they're looking for him. Rhoda leaves him inside. She goes and reports to the church. Peter's outside. And how do they respond? You're out of your mind. The Greek actually says, you're a maniac. And she, kept in, she keeps insisting, and they go, no, 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 it must be his angel. The implication there is he must have already been executed, and his spirit is now with us. They didn't even believe that he had been delivered. They were praying somewhat faithless to me. Man, church, that encourages me. So often, I think, in our prayers, we feel like we have to, like, muster enough faith to make a mountain move, right? We don't muster it. Jesus says the faith that makes a mountain move is the faith of a mustard seed. It's small. Here's my encouragement when it comes to prayer. Sometimes just the faith required to play in the first place is sufficient. Sometimes the faith just to come to God and say, I need you, is enough faith to move God. Not to alter the will of God, but to accomplish the will of God. So, church, pray. In prayer, so let me summarize where we've been. Providence has led to persecution. Persecution has led to prayer, but prayer put them in touch with the power of God. Verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping. 
Can we pause and talk about God's power in, in that little verse real quick? What would you be doing? Like the night before, you know tomorrow I'm going to be executed. Y'all, I would tap into everything Liam Neeson has taught me over the last 15 years. Right? Biting through your chains, like doing anything you can to escape. What's Peter doing? Sleeping. How? Like how can he be sleeping, church? It's because he knew God's power. He knew that God was powerful enough to deliver him. You know why he knew that? It had already happened. Acts chapter 5, Peter's arrested, thrown into a cell, just a common cell. An angel of the Lord shows up and opens it up. He goes straight back to the temple and keeps preaching. Peter knew, not just theologically, but experientially, God can deliver me. If he wants to deliver me, he can deliver me. God, I mean, Peter rested in God's assurance and his power to deliver. But I I think it's deeper for him. I think Peter was able to rest because he knew God's power in eternal life. Peter, P- Peter wasn't just a preacher or a peddling preacher of the good news of Jesus. Like, like, he was a believer in it. And the good news of Jesus states this, that Jesus Christ came into the world and he hung on a cross to pay the penalty and the consequences for all of your sin. What's the consequence of sin? Death. Jesus paid that for you. And in so doing, we read in Scripture that he destroyed the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. That means... That in the gospel that Peter preaches, death is not the end for him. It's just the beginning. Peter can die physically, but spiritually immediately live with the Lord. He can be away from his body, but also be present with God. The body can die and be sown perishable and in weakness, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, but be raised imperishable and in power. Peter can rest assured, even if this happens tomorrow. It's good. Because for me to live is Christ. For me to die, y'all, that's gain. Sleeping soundly and calmly. I, I just, I just, just blows my mind the power of God over Peter's life in this. I, I just imagine him falling asleep, meditating, maybe even singing the old song, Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Peter is sleeping, assured in the power of God, assured in eternal life. Church, God never sleeps. He never slumbers. I think that that can allow you to lay your head down tonight. He's awake. He's providential. He cares for you. Cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's what Peter would encourage you to do. So we see God's power in assurance. But ultimately, as the story progresses, we actually see God's power in his deliverance. Right? We see that the plan of God was to deliver Peter. And look at the humor and how it happens. A bright light shines in the cell in verse 7. Peter's in such deep, deep sleep that doesn't wake him. The angel of the Lord has to strike him to get him to wake up. And then begins to tell him, hey, buddy, get up. Put on your tunic. Get your sandals. Wrap your cloak around you. Follow me. Like giving him step by step. I, I totally understand what Peter's going through right now. It happens every morning at about 5.15. You know, just groggy. You're just waiting on your coffee, trying to figure out what's going on. Annie's already awake, my wife. She's wanting to talk. And I'm like, you got to pause. Let's just get a little coffee, then we can have a conversation. Peter's going through it. He's groggy. He hadn't had his Folgers. And then it says, when he comes to himself, verse 11, he says, now I am sure. The Lord has delivered me. Chains fall off him. Y'all, he was chained to two other soldiers. Walked right past two more soldiers. That's four, okay? Chained to two, two guarding the door. 
We read in Scripture there was four squads. That's 16 soldiers total. Every three hours they're rotating to make sure they're alert and awake. King Herod knew this Peter guy's gotten out before. Let's do everything we can. Let's put him in maximum security to make sure he can't be delivered. Church, the power of God always thwarts the wisdom of man. Always. Whether it is a a 16-soldier guarded cell or a tomb that has been sealed with sentries posted outdoors, God's power will thwart the wisdom of men. But God's providence led to persecution. Persecution led to the church to pray. Prayer put them in touch with the power of God, and God's power accomplished God's purposes. That's the last point for us, God's purposes. We see God's purposes, obviously, in the deliverance of Peter. But let me call our attention to to verse 18, because we also see a few more purposes here. Y'all, King Herod is mad, like, like real mad, because he was trying to score some political points. Instead, he ends up getting humiliated. Right, his, his political prisoner has escaped, has been delivered, and they're searching for him. He ends up killing the 16 soldiers that were supposed to be guarding him. He's humiliated. So he rushes down to Caesarea for some image management, right? Try to rebrand himself, try to win some diplomatic favor. And we see apparently the people of Tyre and Sidon, because of the great famine, were struggling. So they come to King Herod and say, we need, we need you. We need your food. Herod has once again won some political points. A diplomatic win for King Herod. So he calls all the local TV stations. He hosts this massive event, and they come out. And Josephus, the first century historian, tells us he puts on a crown of gold. And then he puts on these royal robes, which was pure silver. So as he comes out in the sun, he's sparkling. And he begins to give this oration, and everybody begins to proclaim he is a god. He's not a mortal. He's a god. So for the second time in our text, the angel of the Lord strikes somebody. First time was for deliverance, second time was for death. Verse 23, because he would not give God the glory, God put him in position of power, but lived a life totally void of acknowledging God. So God strikes him dead. That was the purpose of God. Why? Why did he he get rid of Herod? When verse 1 of chapter 12 and in verse 2 King Herod is trying to stop the church. King Herod is trying to quench the move of God, to discontinue the story of God. Then he gets rid of King Herod, and look at verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. We've seen it from Acts 1 all the way to Acts 12. God wants his story known. He wants to continue it from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And whether it is Saul of Tarsus trying to hinder it or it is King Herod himself, God's purposes will prevail. God's power will accomplish his purposes. And it is the prayer of his people that motivates the power of God. And it was providence that led to the situation that motivated the church to pray. You with me? Church, nothing can put us into touch with God's power like prayer. I just want to encourage you to be a church that prays. Be a church that prays. Pray earnestly, pray corporately, pray persistently, and pray with as much faith as you can muster. Even if that faith is going, God, I don't believe, help my unbelief. Jesus responded to that prayer. He'll respond to it again. So let me pray for us, and then our team will come back up and lead us through another song.
Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, open my eyes, to the power in prayer. Lord, is there a discipline in our faith that makes us feel more foolish, weak, like we're not accomplishing anything? But Lord, we know that's the point. To, to declare our dependency on you, to acknowledge in prayer that we are insufficient for something, and that we need you. I know your heart yearns to hear us pray, to come to you. We, being earthly fathers, know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more our heavenly father yearns to hear his people, yearns to respond to the prayers of his people. Lord, I pray that you would deepen our understanding and our faith of your providence. I pray for the people in this room that are, are, are fighting through pain, walking through suffering. I pray that you would help them see your purposes in that pain, that you would give that pain meaning and give your people endurance to endure it, knowing that that endurance will produce that character and that character will ultimately produce hope and that hope comes from your love being poured out in our hearts. Lord, we love you. May our pain drive us to prayer. May our prayer tap into your power. May your power accomplish your purpose. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Still stand with us.